Hello, everybody. <laughs> We're going to start in First uh, uh, Thessalonians chapter one, and uh, today is going to be about the condition of your heart that makes you value yourself in God's eyes. And there's a lot of people out there in the world who um, feel less than what they should be. And they evaluate themselves based on that and walk around with a low self-image. A lot of Christians have it too because there's still sin in their lives. And so we feel less than what we should be. And today I'm going to show you how to get continuous self-esteem. People in society, though, are constantly evaluating us. You can't get away from it. There's people in your life that I'm sure are judging you and evaluating you. Mostly behind your back. I, I think that's a good thing. Um, if, yeah, just don't tell me, right? Just shut up about it. But we're being evaluated all the time and evaluating ourselves too. And the result of this evaluation is then added this plethora of advertising that we're surrounded by, especially now in a technological age that tells us how we can shape up, uh, get down, get out, Get in. I don't know. <laughs> there's there's uh, products that add that are you know add this to yourself. Take this away from yourself. All of these products, all of these things that if we have enough money are actually going to make us whole and complete and happy. And the Bible tells us that man looks at the outward appearance and God looks at the heart. And that's what Paul's going to tell us today. Today is about the heart of the true servant of God who witnesses, is an ambassador for God. And if you're going to do that, you can't be concerned about what other people think about you. But at the same time, you can't ignore them. And also, you have to have a great joy in what you're doing. And that is what Paul found and what Paul is going to tell us about. So with that, let's open up in prayer and let's thank God for his word and the truth that comes from his word that sets us free that reminds us of what is important and who we really are in Christ Jesus and uh, so with humility and reverence let's pray Our Father in heaven thank you for your word and that in your word we are reminded and taught of so many things that for us as finite-minded and not too smart are easy to forget, uh, but yet you remind us and tell us again and again the things that are important. Your Holy Spirit speaks to us uh, from within and guides teachers and events around us to particularly remind us of things or teach us things that we need to know currently, that we need to know today. And therefore, Father, you have given us today this passage in Thessalonians to give to us what you would have us know so that we can glorify you and live the best life, the life that you have provided, all by grace through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May your spirit enlighten our hearts, and we ask in Christ's name, amen. Now, just a reminder, the theme of Thessalonians is encouragement of believers to endure in godliness at all times. 
And that means in suffering and the Thessalonians. Paul is highlighting suffering a lot in this epistle, uh, just like he does in uh, both Timothy's and in Titus, uh, which are other letters that are written to particular, in those cases, to particular pastors uh, who are going through a great amount of conflict. And Paul also went through a great amount of conflict the word that he uh, generally uses for conflict is agon, where we get our word agony from. And it's actually an athletic word that was used for the agony of exercise, which all of us know well <laughs> and why we don't do it. But, uh, you know, the, the agony of becoming an uh, elite athlete, which would take a lot of work. The, it, and, it, and that has a parallel to becoming an elite believer uh, who is uh, ready and willing to be an ambassador for God, for Christ, to anyone, anywhere, at any time. And that takes training of our hearts to be transformed into what God wants them to be. And what we're going to see here today is that that kind of heart pleases God. And there's this whole other concept that's brought into uh, the New Testament in which this age we have a personal relationship with God one-on-one Whereas in the uh, age of Israel, it's more of a nation's relationship to God. Now, the spirit in you and in me, we're the temple of God. We have God within us, and we, we're all priests. That wasn't true in the Old Testament. Uh, and so part of this personal relationship is to know that I personally can please God. And... You know, do I really want that? And, and, and that's on a day-by-day basis. It becomes a, a, something that is uh, quite absorbing, in fact, and, and really motivating. So uh, today we're going to see in Chapter 2 of Thessalonians, we're going to start in 1 just as a review, but uh, how the minister of the gospel endures despite hardship. Paul makes an issue of the fact that the gospel has to be taught And the ones that teach this gospel have to be in harmony with the truth of it, meaning their lives. Paul is going to tell us that the effective witness is the one who lives the gospel, not just has the words. And he said, we saw this yesterday in chapter 1, that Paul said, we didn't come to you in word only, but we came to you. And he's going to describe now in chapter 2 in detail what kind of behavior they had in Thessalonica, which shows their heart. So a quick review of where we are. In chapter 1, we saw the effect that the gospel had on both Paul and on the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians had four, uh, sorry, three things. uh, Works of faith, labor of love, and endurance of hope. I can't get over the fact that they have all of these things. And Paul says they have become witnesses to the entire area. And they're brand new believers less than a year born again and saved. You do not have to wait decades to be someone who does good works for the Lord and witnesses of the Lord and glorifies the Lord. Now, if you're like me, it might take you a couple decades, but it doesn't have to. We see in the Thessalonians, don't don't buy the lie, it has been put out there. I just think it's it's misdirected that you, you have to take in a whole lot of theology before you can do anything good. And we don't really, that's not biblical, it seems to make sense, right? But it's not actually biblical. And Thessalonians squashes it completely. They're only a few months in the Christian life, and they are 
they're killing it spiritually. Uh, Paul, uh, so uh, the Thessalonians had these things despite the fact that they endured heavy persecution from their own countrymen. So right there in their own city, uh, people are persecuting them in ways, well, Paul didn't really go into the specific ways, but when Paul was in Thessalonica in Acts chapter uh, 17, I think, <laughs> uh, 16 or 17, that um, they were, uh, there was a guy there who helped Paul, and he was dragged into court. Uh, he was Actually, they invaded his house, dragged him out of the house, and presumably they did this with others too, and they took him to the magistrate and charged him with uh, uh, disturbing the peace. But it, certainly it was disturbing the peace, the peace of people's souls who were idol worshipers. But, um, you know, there is there's persecution that they're facing, but they're enduring through it. And as Paul says here, if you look at verse 6 of chapter 1, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Right? There's joy in it, even. How in the world could they possibly do that? And that's what Paul's going to get at. Paul's going to reveal, using himself as an example and the people who are with him, that... Um, yeah, this is absolutely, not only is it possible, it's absolutely commanded and necessary of us. So <clears throat> Paul himself faced persecution when he entered the city, when he taught in the synagogue, and when he had to leave them behind about roughly a month or two after he had gotten there. He couldn't stay in Thessalonica very long. He sent Timothy. He tells us in chapter 3 that he sent Timothy to check on them to see how they were faring and he was over the moon to find out that they were doing marvelously spiritually. And so he's here now going to encourage them to keep going and to do it even better. The joy, therefore, of persecution or joy in persecution is knowing that you're serving God and he is pleased. And therefore, you and God rejoice together even if no one else is. If there is no one else around you who is happy, you are. Because who sees your heart? He does. Who also sees your heart? If you're not self-deceived, you do. And you know you're glorifying God. You know that God is pleased with you. And in fact, he's the only one you really want to please. If others are pleased, fine, that's great. Uh, but if others, if everyone around you is displeased and you know God is pleased, and you have this joy despite the persecution. Maybe you're not being persecuted. Maybe it's just hard. Things are hard right now. Is God pleased? So this is what we as believers are constantly growing in and working on is shaping up our hearts and you know, not so much our outward appearance. And I was thinking about this earlier. I was like, well... You know, so should we let our outward appearance go, you know, like it doesn't matter how we look or how we dress. And that's actually not true because not be, if you're vain about your outward appearance, that's a terrible, terrible prison to be in. But the condition of your physical body can greatly affect the condition of your heart. And so... You know, it, it, and I have found that I'm, I've been exercising a lot more lately because I don't want to be tired as much as I have been. I want to sleep better. I actually sleep a lot better if I exercise. And so I've been, I, that 
And plus, it, you know, it's good for me. I understand that. But am I going to get the appearance of the 25-year-old Joe of the past when I actually, I've seen pictures of myself from back then. I was like, wow, it's a good thing I didn't know how actually good-looking I was because I would have been in way more trouble than I was anyway. But, but you know, am I going to look like that guy in the picture ever again? No. No, not at all. Not even close. But uh, and so and therefore, as you do get older, this kind of sidetracked here, but uh, the things that start looking terrible, if you're vain about how you look and you can't stop this process of outward decay, then you're going to be constantly. Well, here come the advertisers now and they're going to sell you testosterone or whatever. or They're going to sell you these creams that it take all your wrinkles away or that's going to make your hair not fall out. It's going to whatever. And here's this exercise program that's going to make you feel like you're 20 again. It's all a lie. And not only that, it's not important. So what is important is taking care of your heart. Whatever you have to do to your body to help your heart, then you will be motivated to do so. But what is the most important thing? It's the heart, the inward self. So the main theme, the main players, the main player in this book is the gospel. It's not mentioned as much as Paul or the Thessalonians, but it is the main player. The good news of the Lord and what he has done is what has given Paul his courage and what has given the Thessalonians their courage. And what gives us our courage. What causes us to excel as people is the gospel. And when I say gospel, I mean all of the doctrines that are associated with it. So really we're talking about all the good news. You know, what is propitiation, sanctification, justification, reconciliation? You know, what are those things? They're all in the gospel. Though we, when we believed in Christ, we didn't truly understand them yet. But... Uh, the sacrifice of the Lord, the love of the Lord, the faith of our Lord, uh, the endurance of our Lord, it's all there in the gospel. And that good news, as we continue to discover it, changes us greatly. So in verse 5, if you go back one, this is really what chapter 2 is all about is the expansion of verse 5. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, he says, uh, this is the second half of it, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And now Paul is going to explain in chapter 2 what kind of people they proved to be. Uh, proved means that they were tested and shown themselves. You can't be proven unless you're tested. And that's a great principle that's brought out here. The faith of Thessalonians if everything's good and easy, their faith doesn't really shine like it does in the persecution and the hard times. Same with Paul. He said, we proved ourselves among you because while we were persecuted to the hilt, we were gentle, kind, happy, and we treated you like children, like our own children. Not that we treated you like babies, but you know what I mean? He's going to say here, like a nursing mother loves her infant child. That's how we were among you. Even to the ones who were persecuted, Paul. He said, we gave our lives for you. It's amazing, actually. So the sub-theme, uh, this sub-theme of chapter 2, 
of the main theme of encouragement to continue on living godly is the kind of believer who is an effective witness of the gospel, is one who loves to please God more than he wants to please men, he or she. And this is the kind of believer that's an effective witness. Uh, so, you know, this makes me think of the fact that the effective witnesses are the ones that don't just have the words, like the words of the gospel, but they actually have the life that the gospel depicts. The life of the gospel is the life of the Lord. He is the gospel. So the great witnesses, and if you've known anybody who has been an awesome witness of Christ to others, they live the life. They're committed to the life. They look. They're you know not all the time. They're sinners like the rest of us, but they live and look like the Lord. And wonder, you know, why are people drawn to them? It's because God is drawing people to them. God is drawing people to those who are effective witnesses. And so, and like, there's a guy that I've come to know recently. There's a few people I've come to know through Corbin. There's a relationship that I've come to an, another group of people. And this, this guy, he witnesses to the homeless people in Salem. Uh, and his gospel's dead on. And this is, I, I've, know a little bit about this man. And he goes to all, he used to be homeless himself, but he's delivered. And so, whereas you and I would walk into a homeless camp and be like, you know, like, don't touch me and be afraid and feel so out of place, he's right at home. And he gives the gospel to everybody. Helps them, does whatever he can, and is an effective witness. Very effective witness. And he lives it. He's, he's not just words. I mean, you could go in there and shout the gospel as fast as you can and then get out of there before anybody touches you or stabs you or something or before you step on a needle. Or you could actually love the people that are there. And that would shine through you and they would see it. Would everybody believe? No. A lot of them would want to stab you and tell you to shut up or steal your money. But the Lord told him, you know, as, even as he sent out the disciples, he said, don't fear them. And don't be afraid about what you're going to say. I will speak through you. That doesn't mean that we don't train ourselves. But it's another aspect of the effective witness knows that I don't have to get all the words right. If my heart is right, then what comes out of my heart? That's what the Lord told us this. If death is in your heart, death comes out of the mouth. If life is in your heart, life comes out of the mouth. And you, you don't have to get your words exactly right. Just talk about the one that you love. And those whom you love, who can be saved and will be saved by this gospel. So, here's my point. I got distracted there a bit, but... If I'm not that effective witness, let's say nobody's the effect. There's hardly anybody. How many people are like that who are Christians? Not many. Most Christians, they want to go to church, they do their thing, and they want to go home, and you know, they don't, they're not going to homeless camps. They're not going to poor places. You know, they don't want to do that. But a lot of them don't even want to do stuff in the church. They just want to go, get the, what they want, and then go home. But Jesus said the rocks will speak if we don't speak. In other words, there's no one going to hell because we weren't good witnesses. Can you imagine Jesus saying, I really wanted you to come to heaven, but 
Joe was just so self-absorbed that day. and he, I meant him to talk to you, but he, he wouldn't. So it's Joe's fault. You know, look at him that you're going to spend the lake of fire in, to, you know, for the rest of eternity. Look at him. As if that's going to be the case. It would, could never be. It wouldn't be just. And it's never stated in the scripture. What is stated again and again is that God uses those who are his vessels of honor. And they're useful to the master. The vessel of honor, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I think, is that the vessel of honor is, is useful to the master. Now, so if there are no vessels of honor around, God's going to use rocks. And I think what he means by that is God's going to get the gospel to people in, in the way that he can. He can do anything he wants. It doesn't depend upon us. But we're invited to be this, like our Lord. We're called to it. We're commanded to it. And so the question God puts before us is, why don't you want to do it? You know, I'm, I'm, am I going to threaten you with the loss of your salvation? No. You got, I'm telling you openly that you can't lose it. Am I threatening you with loss of rewards? Yeah, sort of. That's there. Right? there. There is, we will be evaluated for our deeds by the Lord. And there is going to be, we're, we're not told what the rewards are, but we're told that we're reward, rewarded for all of eternity. And so there's that. But, you know, all are going to, it's not going to be, as some have taken that to the extra step and said that, well, now, you know, there's going to be people in heaven and you're going to be stuck in in Bible class for all of eternity because you wouldn't learn now. <laughs> you know, And they make eternity sound kind of, yeah, it's okay. It, you know, it almost sounds like, uh, like purgatory where it's kind of like, yeah, it's not so bad. It's not so great. <laughs> you know, it's going to be great for everybody. The motivation that Paul uses again and again and again is that you've been designed for this. And if you love your Lord, you would love mankind. And if you love mankind and you love your Lord, you would be an effective witness of the gospel. And it's, it's easy, actually, to see it that way. So the effective witness thinks something like this. And this, I, I rearranged this quote, but I heard it from this guy who witnesses to the homeless people in Salem. He said something to this effect. People are not generally impressed with me, so I decided to show them Christ and let them be impressed with him. People are generally not impressed with me. People generally don't thank me for what I do. So what I'm going to do is show them Christ and let them thank him. I'm going to show them Christ and let them be impressed with him. And that's what Paul does here. Look at, first, look at verse, chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Vain is a word that means empty. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, so you know what happened to them in Philippi. That's Paul and Silas in prison. And they sang hymns and the doors opened. So, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, and was Paul sad when he was mistreated in Philippi? This is, Philippi is his first stop in Macedonia. He was called to come to Macedonia, and he ends up in jail. And he's not in there going, oh, woe is me. 
with the nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nope, they're singing hymns. Him and Silas, they're joyful. But so again, verse two. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. This word boldness Paul uses in various other places too. Actually, it's used quite a bit in the book of, book of Acts, um, <clears throat> and it's just what it means. But boldness here, also, it, it, the source of this Greek word means boldness of speech. Um, but he he uses the word to speak to you the gospel. So he's already stated that this his boldness is in speaking the gospel amid much opposition. Does he care? that the people are telling him to stop speaking. No. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. So in verse 3, when he talks about exhortation, which is to motivate someone, he's not talking about himself and his exhortation from God. He's talking about his exhortation of the Thessalonians, saying that what I brought you was the gospel. What I did not bring you which every other charlatan is trying to get you to believe, is error, impurity, and it's deceitful. Right? Just like in the world. What are all those advertisers trying to get people to, to buy? Uh, I, I don't see too many ads because you know, we don't watch regular... We watch like Netflix and stuff when we watch shows. But um, the, uh, on this, this game that I play like once a day, it's like a little solitaire game that I play. You have to watch an ad before it will load this game for you on Windows, right? So I sit there and I watch an ad. And now this ad, every day, is for a Toyota. (laughs) Because when we bought a car, we bought a Toyota. But we already bought the car. So apparently the Toyota folk, or whoever runs Windows, you know, thinks we're going to buy another one, I guess. They don't know. They have you know, no, we not only do we not need one, but we couldn't afford one. But the ad is what? What, it, what are the car ads, right? When you see them, they're happy people who lives. You know, they hit in the open road. It's just awesome. Why don't they show the reality that your car smells like kid? Your kid threw up in the car, and you can't get the smell out. There's food underneath the seat. It's dirty. It's filthy. And you're stuck in traffic and someone just cut you off. What about everything else? That's error, impurity, and deceit. And the world, Satan, really, is trying to exhort the human race with lies. And what God is exhorting the human race with is the gospel. So he says, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. So where does Paul get his boldness to speak? It's here. You can answer it for yourself. I'm not going to actually answer that for you because you can see it. And I want you to answer that for yourself. And and this is, where does Paul get his boldness in the face of opposition? The exhortation from Paul to the Thessalonians is not error, not impurity, not deceitful. He has the gospel. And when it comes to others, what he wants to 
know of them. He's not going to flatter them. He's going to give them the gospel. He's not going to care about what they say about him. He's going to, he does care about a response, but he cares about their faith in the gospel. He cares about the gospel, and therefore, between him and all of these people, some who love him, some who hate him, some or the rest are indifferent, it is the him, the gospel, and others. And so we've learned this before. It's you, Christ, and then that person. And when we take Christ out of the way, and it's just me and them, no, it's not good. That's when, it's just a matter of time. That's when the bitterness comes. That's when the anger comes. That's when the disappointment comes. That's when the fear comes. Because we took Christ, we put him aside. It's just me and you. Don't do that. <laughs> I say it myself. Don't do that. It's me, Christ, and you. And in this case, Christ is the gospel. The gospel, euangelon, the Greek word means good news. Christ is the good news. And when we believe the gospel, we knew a fraction of it, a small fraction. But it's faith of a mustard seed, it's all it takes. You're saved forever. You believed in him as your savior, you're saved forever. Now, what kind of savior is he? Who is he? What has he done? Where did he come from? What's he doing in the future? What are all the truths concerning him? His love, his endurance, his, his peace. You know, what is, what is it about him? And, and that is a lifetime of learning. And Paul has learned. And Paul, Paul has been called. And so he says, we've been approved. He's not just speaking of himself. That's why he's using we. The opening of the letter is him, Paul, Silvanus, uh, and I believe, I'm pretty sure I read that. Sylvanus is just another name for Silas. I'm pretty sure. I'll have to double check that. I had to learn my lesson not to voice that stuff. My, as my head's thinking, my mouth is moving, and I've got to be able to think and not talk. <laughs> because, but who cares? If I got it wrong, I apologize. Uh, but they're approved, meaning, and here's your perfect passive of dokimazo. Dokimazo means to test something, to test its purity, and God tested and approved them. The passive voice is terrific here because I don't approve myself, I receive approval. That's what passive means. And you know, in English you got to use extra words to express that thought. In Greek, you just put it in the passive tense, which is a couple of different letters at the end of the verb. Um, and so it's a passive, perfect tense means we've been approved and we're still approved. Now, this could mean, what Paul could mean is that we're approved because I've been called an apostle at salvation and so I'm approved by God for his gospel. What he could also mean, which fits more of the context here, is that his approval has come because he's trustworthy. He's going to say, I'm a steward, not here, but in other passages, I'm a steward that's been entrusted with a ministry to the Gentiles. Can Paul walk away from that ministry? Of course he can. Can Paul just say, you know, I don't, I don't want to do this. Could he be like John Mark? Or there's a guy named Demas who was uh, very involved in Paul's ministry, but at the end of Paul's ministry, Demas took off. He had had enough. And uh, Paul, could Paul do the same? Of course he could. But so up to this point, Paul is approved, and so are those who are with him. So, 
as, he's, as what Paul is getting to here is that anyone can speak the gospel. And we're glad that they do. Uh, anybody can speak the gospel. Uh, in Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse one, chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says that there are those out there who are speaking the gospel from wrong motivation. There, uh, as I said here, I wrote it down for my envy and, envy and strife. So they're out there speaking Christ out of envy and strife. And Paul says, I rejoice because Christ is being taught. Even though their motivation stinks, I rejoice. But then he said, some teach Christ out of love. And that's what Paul does. Now, those who are teaching Christ out of envy and strife, are there ministries, if they have a ministry, if you could call it that, is it remotely as effective as Paul's ministry? No. Why is Paul's ministry so effective? For the same reason that our ministry would be so effective. It is because we want to please the Lord and not people. And therefore, we love the Lord more than we love people. And there's a lot of Christians who have that mixed up. They like the Lord. They're okay with the Lord. But there's other things they love more than the Lord. And they can say, I love the Lord all they want. But as as J. Vernon McGee famously said, your actions speak so loud we don't hear a word you're saying. So anyone can speak the gospel. Paul speaks from the perspective of deep love, and that makes all the difference. If you're speaking to someone else and describing someone you truly love, you do that effectively. If you're talking about someone you could not care less about, then it's completely different. And so Paul's calling and salvation made him approved, but he is effective. Because he can be trusted. He's trustworthy. And then, so here's the next word is entrusted, which is the Greek verb pistuo. It's the, word, it's the verb to believe is so super common in the New Testament. And here it means that he has been entrusted and it's also passive. So just like approval is passive, we receive approval from God. Being trustworthy is God saying to us, you're trustworthy. I could say it about myself all day, but am I really trustworthy? God knows that. God is the evaluator of trustworthiness. And so God approved both approved and trusted Paul and Silas and Timothy and the others that are in their gang, this gang of uh, <laughs> this gang of some and some of them are called like Barnabas and, and I think Timothy too, they're given the title apostle in the epistles. Some call them like secondary apostles, like they're the triple A, triple A team apostles as opposed to the pros. And but I, I don't know if I go with that. But anyway, uh, the whole team has been entrusted by God. Apollos, Epaphroditus, Onesimus, the the guy who uh, Onesiphorus is that his name? <laughs> Mixing them all up. Um, you know the the slave that escaped from uh, Philemon and was returned back. Uh, All of these people are untrustworthy. And they live it. They're not just words. They live it. And that's what makes them so effective. And actually, it's what makes them... Do you think Paul loved what he was doing? Right? I thought about that today. You know, he says, it's in 1 Corinthians 9, 
it's right here, right now, coming up next. I'll leave this for a second. But in First Corinthians, oh, it's right there. There we go. Uh, in First Corinthians 9, he said, I've been entrusted with a stewardship. It's in this very, this passage that he says, I didn't apply for this. He said, if I applied for it, I deserve a reward. But there's no reward in this to me. I must preach the gospel because I have been called to. So he could say, you know, fine, fine. You know, I don't want to uh, get disciplined. I mean, I realize Jesus, I saw you on the road to Damascus, you're obviously God. <laughs> Screwed that one up tonight. <laughs> Sorry. But, you know, I see that you're God. and All right, you're forcing me to do this, even though there's a bunch of suffering in it. So fine, I'll do it. But I don't want to. I'm sure he had days like that. But in general, if we look in Paul's writing, no. In fact, he says in Philippians, he says, for me to die is profit. But for me to remain, he said, is reward to you. You know, so he said, he said, I'm torn. You know, I, I would love to go home and be with the Lord. He says this is from prison. But I also know that there's fruitful labor for me if I remain. And he said, I know that God is going to have me remain, which he did. Um, I think he loved it. He loved it. How else could he have done it so well? So the question comes to us, do you love being God's, God's steward? Or do you wish that the burdens of Christianity weren't on you? Yeah, and that's it. You've got to honestly answer that. I mean all of you. All of you out there are listening. Um, all thousands of you. Uh, you know, uh, you've got to be honest with yourself about that question. Because if you don't answer it rightly, you can, you'll, you'll waste 20 years of your life. And 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 you'll have you'll have no fruit in it. I mean, if if the Lord is not the one that you love. So as we started with in the, at the beginning of today's lesson, that there are many people who are hindered and held back by their self doubt. I'm not. A, I don't talk real well. You know, that's what. Moses said to the burning bush, don't send me to Egypt, man. I'm just going to mess this up. I don't talk real well. We all think Mo Moses is probably a, a natural genius, but whatever. Uh, so, so many, so many are hindered and held back by self-doubt. They doubt themselves. And on the other end are those who are prideful and think they got it all, and they just make fools of themselves. Neither one of those is desirable. But when Jesus sent out the twelve witnesses uh, for the kingdom, it, it, he said to them, look, I'm sending you out. I want you to go just to the towns and villages of Israel and to preach that the kingdom of God is at hand. The king is here. And I'm going to give you the power to heal, to do miracles, cast out demons. Uh, this last season of The Chosen did a wonderful job depicting that and they did they tried i think they did an excellent job in depicting the fear of the disciples so in this scene in the chosen jesus is in a room with them and he says i'm sending you out 
And they're like, you're not going with us? I was like, no. They've never done anything like this. And they're, and to the, they're saying, he's sending them to places like, you know, people don't want to hear this. It, they're going to get persecuted. So he says this. Actually, you can turn there with me. Go to Matthew chapter 10. I slipped this into my notes later. That's why you don't have it, Alan. But if you look at Matthew 10, 16... He said, Behold, I send you out. This is to the twelve now. This is not to the whole church. Uh, not, you know, there is no church yet. But uh, verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. All right, innocent means pure here. It doesn't mean stupid. It means pure. Obviously, it's not stupid because you're to be shrewd as a serpent. In other words, use your heads. I've given you a big, juicy brain to use it. Use it. But he says, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues, and you will even be brought before the governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Now, pause, right? Picture yourself in uh, one of these disciples that are in the room with Jesus. All you've done is go places with Jesus. And he does the miracles, and he talks to the opposition, and you're just standing there watching this great man do his great thing. And now he says to you, I'm sending you out to the homeless village. (laughs) Where? (laughs) And don't get me wrong, it's not going to go well for you. It's not going to go. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to go well. Isn't it amazing for us to to realize that when God sends us out to evangelize this world or to witness of the truth, even to Christians who are not into the truth, that He doesn't remove all the persecution from our path? He could. He He doesn't make it easy. He doesn't remove the opposition. He doesn't pluck the people out of our path that are going to try and stop us and say bad things to us and try and you know, uh, hammer us with their false thinking. He doesn't remove them. But what he says to us is that I'm in you. So don't fear them. I can't, these disciples must have been uh, petrified. Exactly. Exactly right. They would have been, you know, you get that, that feeling in your solar plexus and, you know, in other places of your body where everything's tightening up and you're like, what? So he says in verse 19, but when they hand you over, he doesn't even say if, when they hand you over, don't worry about it. But he says, he doesn't say don't worry about it. He says, do not worry about how or what you're going to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Right? It's an indication here that they had some help from the Holy Spirit when Christ sent them out. Um, but that, the point here, is, and this is what Paul does. right? Paul has taken this very statement to heart. I'm going to Philippi. They threw you in jail, Paul. Excellent. I'm going to sing songs. <laughs> and then, and then, oh, oh they let me out. Well, they, they, you know, the God let me out. I'm going to the next town, Thessalonica. Well, they want to kill you here. Perfect. Let's get out of here and go somewhere else. 
and another place and another place and another place. What we often look at Paul's um, suffering and say, man, what, how could he have done it? What we sometimes I think fail to see is how many people Paul saw, like to the Thessalonians here, converted. People who went from hard, immoral, angry, bitter lives to freedom in Christ. He saw them by the hundreds, maybe the thousands. As uh, that, that can be very addictive. You know, out of a hundred people here who want to kill me and tell me I'm telling lies and tell me I'm stupid and I'm a fool, there's that one person, the one sheep out of the 99 who believes in the gospel and is saved forever. And it changes them. So Paul is not bold about his speech because of his innate talent as a speaker. Because he's not. He said this what was he heard from the Corinthians. This must have been very encouraging. Second Corinthians ten seven. For they say, quote, Paul heard this from Corinth. His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal appearance is unimpressive, and his speech contemptible. I hate his voice. And he looks dumb. Right? Unimpressive presence, speech contemptible. <laughs> um, so, you know, what if Paul's worth came from his presentation, how he spoke, how he looked, which is what most of the world is impressed with? I said, I, you know, as you know, I'm taking this course on on. It's, it's all focused on online preaching, and some of it is just hilarious to me. I have not at all incorporated. I've incorporated some, some I haven't. Uh, it's very educational, but um, there was one segment where they, you know, who are, for online preachers, the ones that are watched the most, they get, you know, on a Sunday, for a Sunday message they put out there on YouTube, they get thousands, ten thousands, and over time, they get millions of hits. And, you know, if they're teaching the gospel, fantastic, right? But then the guy teaching the course, he showed their pictures. And there are all these, you know, maybe early 30s, they're fairly young, very fit, and very good looking. Right? And I'm looking at this presentation I'm like oh yeah I don't look like that <laughs> I'm not going to get a million hits online not for my looks that's for sure All right but they they get people are impressed with looks it's just it's not so are we you know so are we uh, everybody is you know it's the it's the way that we are our eyes are impressed with things that look attractive and we look at the attractive uh, but Paul is very unattractive. So, you know, God didn't call the Adonis to witness and to write half the New Testament. He called the frumpy guy with the squeaky voice. I don't know what his voice was like, but, you know. And uh, But then he says this at the end of this chapter in 2 Corinthians 10, 17 through 18. He who boasts is to boast in the Lord. 
For it is not he who can commends himself. Sorry. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but whom the Lord commends. That's just what he said in Thessalonians. I and and my own, meaning Paul and Silas, uh, I mean Timothy and Silas, we have been approved by God and entrusted by God with the stewardship that we have been given. We are faithful with it. And so when I go into Thessalonica, yes, I speak boldly because it's the Lord who examines my heart and it's he who I want to please. I do not care to please you who are trying to stop me from speaking the gospel. I am not trying to please you at all. What I want to know from you is do you believe the gospel? And if you don't, good luck. But I'm moving on to the next guy and the next guy and the next guy. And therefore, as he said, I'm going to speak with boldness because the Lord has approved me. Therefore, my worth comes from the Lord, not from the opinions of men. It's so freeing. Right? And us here, we've heard this before. We know this. Does it bear a reminder over and over? It most certainly does. We have to be reminded of it. And every time we hear it, we're probably a little more mature and a little more ready for it to apply it to our lives, to every day, and even in prayer, (coughs) to talk with God about his entrusting you and approving you with your stewardship, because all of us have one. So as Paul says here, the Lord is the only one who can truly commend and approve you, and that's for the same reason that we saw last Sunday, that you can't judge anybody. Not that you shouldn't, you can't. The reason you and I can't judge anybody is because we don't have the penetrating eyes that see into a person's heart. We don't. Do I, I want to judge certain people. Well, that lesson has impacted me quite a bit. I didn't realize how much I was judging people until I heard myself teach that message. Because oh, it just happened today too. I can't. I don't remember who it was, but uh, I was the person popped up in my mind, and I'm ready to judge. And I'm like, I can't judge. I can't evaluate that person. I don't. I can't see their heart. I don't know what's going on with them. I don't know anything about it. I can't judge. The only one who can judge is the Lord, and He will do so when He returns. Why can He judge? For the same reason that another person can't approve of me fully or judicially, I guess, uh, truthfully. Another person can't because they can't see what's in my heart, but the Lord can. And since the Lord can, then I can say I'm approved. Did you see in your own heart? Is it him that you love or is it something else? And if it is something else, Find out what that is and talk to the Lord about it in prayer. And keep plugging with God's word. It will change. So only God can see the heart. And unless you're self-deceived, you can see it too. Don't forget the Holy Spirit is within us to witness to our human spirit that we are the children of God. So the Holy Spirit is in us to show us whether we're pleasing to God or whether we're not. Are we listening? So the minister, and that ugly guy, that ugly Russian guy is Tolstoy. (laughs) I hate to call him ugly. But he was a terrific, terrific uh, man of God. Um, 
who uh, spoke, who wrote, um, um, you know, in, in such prolifically uh, wonderful things. But anyway, uh, the ministers or the witnesser. And when I say minister, I just want I put in witnesser because I don't mean minister as a pastor. I mean minister as every one of us. Every one of us has a ministry. The minister or witnesser's joy and effort come from his love of pleasing God. And so as Tolstoy said here, if you want to be happy, try only to please God, not people. If you want to be happy, try only to please God and not people. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean that you isolate yourself from people because that's not what pleases God. You say, I'm not going to please people. I'm just going to ignore them. But you're not pleasing God. I'm going to be cold and indifferent towards them. You're not pleasing God. What does Paul say here? Uh, I'm already out of time. Look at verse... Go back to 1 Thessalonians, please. And look at verse 5. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our own but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Now notice in verse 8, he says, we were pleased to impart to you the gospel, not only the gospel, but our lives. So he's speaking to them as when they were unbelievers, like I'm imparting to you the gospel. So he doesn't have an attitude that you're an unbeliever, so I'm going to be cold and indifferent and impersonal to you. But in fact, quite the opposite. He says, we prove to be gentle to you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. So this is a tenderness, a gentleness that comes from divine love toward others and yes, the unbeliever who you're witnessing to. Right? People, can, people see when you, if you're cold and indifferent and impersonal. Let's see that. Is that, is that the gospel? Impersonal? Jesus on the cross was personal (laughs) to those around him. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. What did he say to the thief on his right, or really the murderer on his right? Today you'll be with me in paradise. He cared. Even when he was on the cross, he was personal with those who are unbelievers. And so we, as Paul had this same attitude as him. So... um, So we seek to please only the one who can truly examine our hearts. And if you can skip him back to verse 4, well, we might as well read it from verse 1 to 4. I thought we were going to, I thought I had plenty of time to do verse 5 and onward, but we'll, we'll, t- we'll t- take our time. I have to, have to remember that I can take my time with this. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain or empty, but we had 
but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but as God who examines our hearts. Only God sees your heart and mine, and we do, if we're honest with ourselves and humble enough. And if you don't think you see your heart well enough, go to God in prayer and ask. He will do it. It's amazing if you truly want to see something that is legit. You know, Jesus said everything that you ask of the Father, He's going to give you. And He doesn't didn't mean just like money or something. He meant everything to the Father's glory. If that's what you want, you are going to get it. You will see it. And it is a trip for God to answer these prayers when you ask Him for things. Especially when you're asking Him for insight or sight. That God will fulfill it. Um, only God can examine our hearts. Who do you want to please? Self? Others? Uh, and, and again, it's, it's, a, it's something that we have to be very honest with ourselves about. Uh, do I seek to please others more than I do God? Because others can see me. You know? Others have opinions. They have voices. They can, you know, do I seek them more than I seek God? Because if I seek God more, then their opinions and their voices, whatever they say, is not going to truly be, you know, you're not going to take it as gospel. Because who are they? As David wrote, what can mere man do to me? If I trust in the Lord, what can mere man do to me? Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body. Don't fear them. So God truly examines our heart. All right, so tomorrow we'll pick up in verse 5 and plug our way through chapter 2 until we finish Thessalonians. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you and you alone are the one who sees our heart. So let us examine our hearts, Father, in good conscience and in clarity, and then also in light of you through your Spirit, to come to the right conclusions and then to also rejoice in our relationship with you and that you see us as your son. We've, we've all got things wrong, things that we need to fix and improve upon. Uh, we're sinners, Father, and you, you are very clear about that. We thank you for that. But we also know that you see us as you see your son. And so there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how you see us, in him. Father, let us see ourselves in him and grab hold of this life that you have so blessed us with. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.